good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Um, I know many of you asked. The morning went beautifully. Um, this is your first time we launched a morning congregation uh, this morning. It was awesome. It was really, really great. I know the room feels empty. I know many of you are missing your friends, and that's a good thing. We've said this over and over again, that the nature of true sacrifice is giving up what we love in exchange for what we love even more. And about a group of people, a little less than the number of people in this room, gathered and worshiped Jesus uh, in our neighborhood on a Sunday morning, um, which is crazy to think there's that many people who want to do that on a Sunday morning uh, here in Denver, but they did. And they did it uh, underneath the banner of Jesus Christ and underneath the banner of the Summit Church, but more importantly, Jesus Christ. And uh, it was a beautiful thing. So, um, yeah, it, it went really, really well. And, um, but we miss our friends, don't we? We, m- we miss many of our friends as well. <laughs> yes. Um, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in the gospel according to Mark. And I'm really excited to study this book with you. I'm really, as I was thinking about this week, I'm really excited, uh, not just for what this book offers, but what we as a church desire to offer, and really what you desire for our church to offer, because I believe they're one in the same thing. Uh, That is, I believe that what we're all kind of collectively after is substantial, radical life change. I think kind of no matter what it is, that you might believe. I mean, the reality is, is what brought many of you here tonight, um, particularly those of you who are new and those of you who would consider yourself a tremendously unlikely person to be at church in Denver on a Sunday night when it's snowing outside, um, if that's you, like the reason you might be here is because you're not very happy with what your life looks like right now. And not only that, but you've tried all sorts of ways in order to make your life better and to see substantial life changes. So you've changed jobs, and you change where you live, and you change roommates. You might have even changed spouses. You've changed significant others. You've drunk, uh, you've drunk a lot. You've done a lot of drugs. You've had all sorts of experiences. You've taken all sorts of trips. And now you're here. Like, we are your last resort, um, which is totally fine. And that doesn't hurt my feelings whatsoever. We're just really glad you're here. Uh, because the same thing that you want is what we want and is really what this book is desiring to offer you here. Now, I spent a lot of time this week uh, really thinking about kind of this concept of life change. Not just this concept of life change, um, but really like how are our lives changed? And as I was thinking about it, particularly in light of last week where we gathered one last time kind of as one church um, together, um, and we celebrated so many stories of life change that have happened throughout our church, Um, What was interesting to me was the common denominator in all of those stories um, was a person. was a lot of times somebody telling a story that my life was radically changed for the better or radically changed for the worse because I met this person and I don't remember their name anymore or I was at this conference and I didn't even like the vast majority of what this person said, uh, but they said this one line and it forever changed the way that I live. Or this person said this to me and it radically changed who I am. Am. Think about this in your own life. For many of you, the reason you do the things you do, you work the job you work, you love the things you love, you prioritize the things you prioritize, um, largely at the, the center of the reason you are who you are, your identity uh, is an encounter with a person. This might be for the better, it might be for the worse. And so for the better, for example, I was thinking about this in my own life. Um, I was thinking about a decade ago, I preached my very first sermon. And it was at a uh, nursing home at 7.45 a.m. on a Saturday morning to about 15 uh, men and women in their 80s, 90s, and 100s. And I went in, like, thinking, I'm going to kill this thing. Like, it is going to be phenomenal, and they are going to be deeply impressed. And I got in there, and I realized this is terrible. Um, It started with me getting there. I I think I've told the story before, but it started with me getting there. And uh, not only do they misspell my name, um, I'm Brian with a Y, and I get a little bit... um, 
frustrated when people don't spell my name right. So not only did they spell it Brian with an I, but they actually inverted the letters. Um, so they listed my name as Brain Barley uh, on the bulletin, <laughs> to which I had to explain to all these ladies who couldn't hear anything, like, my name is not Brain, it's actually Brian, it's merely a typo. Um, not only that, I get 15 minutes into my first sermon ever, and there's this lady who, I mean, it's a tiny room, like with 15 people, it felt very, very full. And there's this lady who is very demonstrative, uh, she is very uh, demonstrably, is that a word? Um, yes? Okay, I hope so. She, she is showing the fact that she is tremendously bored with what it is that I'm saying. And the way she does this is by checking the time. Now, here was the catch. She was blind, so she couldn't actually look at a watch. She had to hit the clock that she wore around her neck, which literally screened the time out. So, like, I'm in the middle of my first point, and she hits this button on her chest, and it's like, beep! The time is 7.53 a.m. Beep! Um, which was like, yeah, thanks for the encouragement. I really, really appreciate it. And I remember thinking to myself, as I'm, I'm like, I'm never doing this again. Like, that was literally what was going through my head. I was this far, as far as I am in now, I was that far into the sermon, and I was like, I've tried once, and I gave it my best, and I'm terrible at this, and I'm never going to do this again. I had made up that decision in my mind. And I remember being totally dejected, and trying to get out of that room as quickly as possible, as I'm getting ready to walk out of the room, this woman, I have no idea what her name is, I'm not sure, my guess is she's not even living anymore, she just grabs my arm as I'm getting ready to leave the room, and she says, I want to tell you, you did a great job this morning. I want to tell you, you have a gift for this, and I can't wait to hear you again, so please come back. And even in that moment, I mean, it was just like, I mean, a single moment, I don't know the lady's name. I never will. But just a single encounter significantly impacted what it is that I do with my life. For others of us, it might not be an encounter for the better. It might be an encounter for the worse. For, for many of us in this room, the reason we struggle to feel beautiful, even though everybody around us would say that we're beautiful, the reason we struggle to feel successful, even though by the world's standards we are radically successful, the reason that we struggle with self-confidence, the reason we work like crazy people is because somebody said something to you in your formative years about the way you looked or what you were going to do with your life or what you were going to make of yourself, and you forever live underneath the pressure of trying to prove that person wrong. Or maybe believing that it's true. It's amazing how, even into our 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond, these encounters with people can significantly shape our identities well into adulthood. Now, why do we say all this? Well, here's the big question for the series. Is if an encounter with a single person, even a stranger, even somebody we can't remember their names of, if an encounter with a single person can radically shape who we are to that degree. What could happen in your life if you actually met the living God? If you having that conversation with a stranger whose name you can't even remember and it shapes like what you do for a profession, like what could happen if you don't just meet God but you actually enter into relationship with God who desires to fully know you, he does fully know you, and he desires for you to fully know him? What, what could happen? Well, here's the thing. I hope maybe that possibility in some ways entices many of you because, I mean, here's the deal. That's largely what the gospel according to Mark is. Like, we're going to spend so much time in this book, and, and what I hope you see is, first and foremost, it's not an in-depth book study. 
Like, that's what we're doing. We're not doing an in-depth book study, first and foremost. What we're doing is giving you the opportunity to meet a person. <clears throat> the person of Jesus Christ. And we believe, as a church, and the church has historically believed, that in Jesus, he is fully God and fully man, and consequently, he is the place, he is the person where humanity and divinity come to enter into full relationship with one another. And so as we study this book, for those of you who yearn for radical life change, for those of you who desire for your life to look substantially different than the way that it looks right now, and you're open to the possibility of meeting Jesus, this book is very much for you. And it's really for all of us, because we all desire it. Now, here's what we're going to do. Tonight is just largely an introduction into the book. And uh, we're going to look at the first three verses. Before we do that, let me just kind of help you wrap your mind around the big picture of what it is that we're doing here. Um, Here's what we're first going to do. We're going to meet Jesus in this series. But we're going to first, it's important for you to understand, we're going to meet Jesus through the Bible. We're going to meet Jesus through studying the Bible. And I don't want to take kind of you understanding that for granted. I think for many of us, um, particularly maybe if you've been around church for a while, you assume that we just study the Bible because we study the Bible, and it's like, what else are we going to study? Like, we're not going to study Fifty Shades of Gray, obviously, and so like, are we gonna, what else? Are we, it's like, we're going to have to study the Bible, and that's what we're going to do. And yeah, like, we, we study the Bible, but there's a reason, there's an intentionality behind it, because what we desire is to study and to meet the one that the Bible is all about, the person of Jesus Christ. And how is it that we learn about anybody uh, who might not be, you know, available for us just to go like, hear them speak at a conference, um, we typically read books about them. We typically read biographies about them, which is in many ways what the Gospel of Mark uh, is. It's a biography about the life of Jesus. And for many of you, uh, if you've read a good biography recently, you know that even if that person lived and died uh, 500 years ago, you know an excellent biographer gives that person almost life, and you have the opportunity almost to enter into their world and understand who they are and the implications they have uh, in your life. And so we study the Bible for the purpose of meeting Jesus and having him come to life to us. Now, uh, with that, uh, we also believe that the Bible is better than studying just sort of any sort of sterile biography for a couple of reasons. Now, the first is, is that we believe that Jesus Christ is unlike any other historical figure. Uh, we believe that Jesus didn't just live, and he didn't just die, uh, but he got back up again. And so what differentiates kind of like reading a biography about George Washington and reading a biography about Jesus is George Washington is still on the ground. And Jesus Christ is alive, and because he's alive, he's still in the business of changing lives today. He, he helps us, by the power of his spirit, uh, uh, grasp the truths for the most important areas of our lives. So not only is Jesus unlike any other historical figure, but the Bible is really like any other historical book. It's not merely a biography, and I'm not going to give a whole sort of philosophical, apologetical defense here, but the Bible's claim about itself is that it is a living and active book, that its truth has the ability to come alive in a way that no other book's truth does, and it sort of spills into the nooks and crannies of the most important aspects of our lives. In fact, I was reading a great example of this this past week. It actually came from one of the resources I'm about to recommend from you. And it came from a gentleman by the name of Emile Callier. Uh, I told the AM crew, like, it's a French name, and I probably butchered it. So if any of you know French, I'm sorry, uh, but I did the best I could. Okay? And um, Callier, he grew up in a small French village, and he grew up an agnostic. He actually even said about himself, I was born in a small village of France and received an education that was naturalistic to the core. This could possibly have had a great deal to do with the fact that I don't even see a Bible before I reached the age of 23. And he tells this story where he actually comes to read a Bible for the very first time in his life. And so what happens is, it's kind of a 
this crazy story where he kind of reached a, a low point of despair, where he kind of, you know, tried everything, and he gets his last resort, and his w- wife is handed a Bible. She hands it to him, and he reads it for the very first time, and he actually journals uh, what it is that he came to see and as he read the Bible for the first time in his life. Here's what he said. He said, I read and I read and read, now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging with. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder, and suddenly the realization dawned upon me This was the book that would understand me. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive to me. What I want you to understand is that as we meet Jesus, we are meeting um, somebody who is unlike any other historical figure. We are studying a book that is unlike any other historical book, and so we are going to go slow through this. We're going to treasure this. We're going to savor this. One of our members kind of pointed this out to me, and um, it's almost like for many of you, you want to go quick through the Bible, but there's other things in your life you're deeply passionate about that you, you, you eagerly desire to know all the intricacies and the nuances of. And so like for many of you, even last night, you went to yet another you know, microbrewery that opened up in our neighborhood, and you had a porter, <clears throat> and you were like, sipping it and savoring every last detail. Like, is that a hint of tobacco that I taste on the tip of my tongue? Um, Others of you, last night, you went out, you know, you took your sweetie pie out for dinner to the best restaurant, and you're in debt now, and over a candlelit dinner, like, you were there, and you were, you know, trying to name the intricacies of the spices uh, of the recipe that you enjoyed so much. In the same way that we delight in Denver in craft beer or food, uh, we desire to be a people who delight in the intricacies and the nooks and the crannies of the Bible as well. I understand it might not be as culturally popular, but we actually think it's better, and we actually think you'll enjoy it more, and so that's why we're going to be doing this. This is a book that's unlike any other book. Now, in order to help you do this as well, let me just kind of list off some resources. We've tried to really step up our game as far as resources go um, to help you kind of understand um, what it is you believe and why you believe it even better. And so let me tell you about three in particular. The first is the series notebooks. Uh, Andy mentioned those. You can journal in those or take notes in those or study the passages ahead of time uh, as well. Uh, the second is the blog. If you go to our website, we're stepping up our game with our blog. Every Monday, I'm going to post um, a few resources that I use in my research um, that I just didn't mention on a Sunday that might be helpful as well if you kind of want to go deeper and learn more about what it is we talked on a Sunday. Um, we've also put together a collection of books that we're selling as well. Now, let me say this. We never sell money, uh, books at a profit. We're not a bookstore. We typically even sell them at a loss so we can get them into your hands at an affordable rate. Um, we just want you to understand what you believe and why you believe it. And so there's three actually for sale um, at the, uh, the Citigroup's map out in the foyer. Um, the first is a book by Timothy Keller, who's a pastor in urban New York City called Jesus the King, where he walks through the gospel according to Mark. And this is really good. If you could only buy one of these three books, this is the one I would recommend you buying. It's fantastic. Um, this is called Reinventing Jesus. I know for many of you in this room, you think very philosophically or you think very scholarly, or you may even, may even think very skeptically as well. And uh, this book is essentially answering the question, uh, why can we trust and believe the Bible? Like, why can we trust the Bible? And maybe you're the person who read the Da Vinci Code uh, a few years ago, and, you know, you think that albino killer monks um, are kind of establishing the doctrine of the church. And you'll read this, and you'll be like, 
Ah, uh, that was not true. Okay, so that's there um, as well. And then this, this is, um, this is what we call the granddaddy of them all. Uh, this is The Gospel According to Mark by James Edwards. This is a good commentary. I mean, that's basically what we'll call it. He walks verse by verse to give all the kind of the scholarly um, understanding of, um, of the gospel according to Mark. I'm using this in my study. My goal is not for you to show up on a Sunday and be like, oh my gosh, like look how much he knows. Like uh, I study and I read books like these ones and I want to put these in your hands uh, as well. And so this would be really good. Um, there's only two of these left. We only ordered three. Um, they're, they're, it's a little pricey. It's $35, um, but it's excellent. And it would look excellent on your bookshelf. And um, we hope you read it. It's very, you know, it's impressive to look at, but it's even better to read. And so um, I would love to challenge some of you to get um, the last couple of these as well. If we run out, uh, we'll order more uh, as well. So um, I would just really encourage you, as we're doing this, um, what we don't want you to do is to be at this church as a spectator, but rather as a participant. We want you to come here on a Sunday and participate and study alongside us because you have the opportunity to meet Jesus for yourself. Now, uh, we talked about meeting Jesus through the Bible. Second, um, we want to talk about meeting Jesus through Mark. Meeting Jesus through Mark. So it's important for us to understand uh, not just what this book is, um, but so much who the author is as well. Now, I'm going to give you kind of a bare bones explanation of who Mark is, um, because in many of these resources, um, it, it goes further into in terms of explaining who Mark is as well. But here's kind of the most important thing for you to understand, is that Mark uh, was almost like a personal secretary, assistant, manicretary, whatever it is you want to call it, uh, for the apostle Peter. So Peter, the chief apostle, the lead disciple, commissioned by Jesus to help build the church, he is sent out, and he, alongside Mark, goes, and basically he proclaims the gospel, and Mark is kind of his assistant in that task. Now, the reason we know this is because in early church history, there was a guy named Papias, and Papias, uh, around 100 AD, actually writes about who Mark was, and here's what he writes. He says, this is what the elder, now, when he says this, what Papias is doing is he's actually quoting an even earlier uh, church leader, we think is actually one of the disciples, most scholars believe it's the disciple John, um, he's quoting an earlier church leader about who Mark is. He says, this is what the elder used to say. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. For he had not himself heard the Lord or been his follower, but later, as I said, he followed Peter. Peter delivered teachings as occasion required, rather than compiling a sort of orderly presentation of the traditions about the Lord. So Mark was not wrong in recording in this way the individual items as he remembered them, Here's kind of the key sentence. His one concern was to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in reporting them. So Peter, he's lived with Jesus. He proclaims the message of Jesus. He travels around. He encourages the church. He helps people see, meet Jesus and have their lives change and have their identity change. Mark is traveling alongside them. And then what church history tells us is that Peter gets to a point where he's about to die or has just died. Mark is like, wait a second. The message of who Jesus is can't die with Peter dying. And so we need to write this down. I need to write this down. I've been your personal secretary. I need to write this down, put down an orderly account so people can meet Jesus as well, even after Peter is dead and gone. Now, what's so beautiful about this is what this means. Again, I think many of us, we just think we're opening the Bible, and that's what we do. We just open a Bible. And here's what I would help you understand, is that as we walk through this book, you are studying the exact same words that were heralded by the Apostle Peter 
to rooms full of Christians and skeptics alike about the character and nature of Jesus, about the possibility of life change through Jesus thousands of years ago on the other side of the world. It is an unbelievable privilege to meet Jesus through Mark. It is an unbelievable opportunity for us to sit in a room much like men and women did 2,000 years ago and to hear the good news heralded and, and how it can shape our lives practically. People thousands of years ago were yearning for the same thing we in this room are yearning for as well. And we have a true and accurate record, report of it. And so we study this together as well. Now, let's do this now. Let's jump into the actual text. This is where I think it gets good. Um, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the first three verses. And it's gonna be, as we look through the first three verses... Let's learn two important things about who Mark is, what he does, and what he's going to kind of, just a big overview of what he's going to try to accomplish uh, as we're studying this book that he's written. Now, here's the first. is Mark, he's the type of guy who will tell you the good news you really need to hear. Mark is the kind of guy who will tell you the good news you really need to hear. Now, look with me at verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, where do we get this first point from? Well, you see where he says the beginning of the gospel, that word gospel? Uh, I would circle that, or I would underline that, or I would write that down. Um, When Mark is using that word, it's important for you to understand that he is using it in its most pure form. Uh, A lot of times for us, we throw the term gospel around. Even in popular American culture, it's a lot of times thought of as a literary genre. It's thought of as maybe a particular type of music, Um, but it's not. In this day, the word gospel, it wasn't a term that Mark invented, but he's actually borrowing it. It was a political and it was a military term, and it simply meant good news. The Romans use it most often, and when the Romans used it, typically what would happen is a, you know, a politician would celebrate his 40th birthday, and a herald would go around proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news, this guy was born. And, and so the people would, you know, have to receive this good news. Aren't you so glad that this guy who collects taxes from you was born? And they'd say, yay, like, we're so happy. Um, you know, and then they leave. They're like, we hate that guy. Um, or the same thing in, in military conquest. What would happen is a gospel of a general would be proclaimed, his victory would be declared. Now, here's what's particularly interesting about this. It's not just that Mark decides to borrow this political and military term, but the the level of differentiation it has from the popular understandings of spirituality and religion of that day, and not really just of that day, but of our day as well. Now, in that day, and really in our day as well, if you thought about kind of religion, there were kind of two primary ways to think about it, almost at opposite ends of a spectrum. On the more progressive scale, uh, you had the more Greek way of thinking about spirituality, uh, where the Greeks said it's all about what you know. And actually, the way they summed up kind of their belief system was that of gnosis, or you might have heard of Gnostics, which simply meant uh, knowledge. It's all about kind of what it is that you know, acquiring all sorts of secret knowledge, um, sort of one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum were the more conservative, obedient Jewish people who said it's not so much about what you know as much as it is about what you do. And so the way they summed up kind of the entirety of their spiritual understanding was that of Torah or law. It's all about what you do. Now, here's what's fascinating. is that when Mark opens these, um, this, this story about Jesus, and he comes out, and it's no flowery introduction, and it's no prologue, and no author's notes, and no acknowledgments, and no thank yous. No, he's just like the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what he's declaring? 
He's declaring that Jesus Christ is unlike any sort of understanding of spirituality and religion that exists uh, today or in that day as well. That it's not first and foremost about what you know, and it's not first and foremost about what you do, but it's about believing and receiving what Jesus has already done for you. That that is the essence of of good news. It's it's not just something to sort of intellectually ascertain to. It's not just something, a list of rules to obey. It's a work that has been completed and been done. It is meant to simply be believed and received and to live in light of its truth. I'll just kind of put our cards on the table from the very front, okay? Like, this is what we believe. We believe that what differentiates Christianity from all the other religious systems that are out there is that it's first and foremost not about knowledge. It's not first and foremost about obedience. It's about receiving and believing what Jesus Christ has done in our place, that he's lived as we should have lived, he's died in our place for our sin, and he's resurrected, conquering Satan's sin, death, and hell, the greatest enemies of humanity that we have no answer for in our own power, but by grace through faith, Jesus' victory becomes our victory. And here's Mark coming out of the gate, guns blazing, saying, I have come to offer you a brand new third way of looking at and understanding the world. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the implications of this when we get to the next point. But here's what I want to help you understand is that, I mean, not only is this good news that Mark is bringing to us the gospel, it's just good news that Mark is willing to tell us what we really need to hear. I was thinking about this this week. I just feel like in our culture, which is tremendously hyper-tolerant, isn't it? Like, we, we struggle to kind of tell anybody what they need to hear um, unless, unless they're not in the room. Right? Like we'll tell somebody what they need to hear if they're not in the room uh, or if they're not present. But other than that, like we're going to be super, super you know, nice and tell people exactly what it is that they, they want to hear. I feel like where I see this uh, the best in all of culture, did a ton of sociological research this week. And um, I was watching The Bachelor, which I know um, I was for pure sermon research. And I know some of you watch it as well, so we won't take a show of hands or anything like that, but some of you watch The Bachelor. And I just feel like, not just in The Bachelor, but in any sort of reality TV, you know, you have like the group interacting with one another, and then you have like a girl who's kind of like later giving her account of the events that have taken place. It's kind of spliced in the middle as well. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And, and I was just seeing this this past week where it's like, you know, a girl walks into the room after a really dramatic scene, and all the girls are like, hey, how are you doing? Like, can I get you anything? Like, do you want a coffee? Or do you want a blanket? Or like, come here, sweet. Oh my gosh, that was so scary. And you fell down. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And then like splices to the exact same girl. And they're like, Kelsey is nothing but a no good fat liar. Like, that's what they bring. Like, she faked that panic attack because she wants Chris to not eliminate her at the rose ceremony. And she is manipulative. Like, if we're just honest, like, that's the way we all function, right? We will tell everybody the truth as long as they're not in the room. And I hope what you understand is whether it's on The Bachelor or in our own lives, like, that's not the true essence of friendship. Like, friendship is not always telling people what it is they want to hear. That's cowardice a lot of times. It's enablement a lot of times. And how wonderful it is that here is this man named Mark who is finally willing to say right out of the gate, friend, 
You have believed for a substantial part of your life that your knowledge is going to save you. You believe that your intellect is going to save you. You believe your good works are going to save you. You believe that you doing the right things is going to force God's hand and make him bless you like he's almost some sort of cosmic Santa Claus that blesses the good and curses the bad. And I've come to tell you that that is foolishness and that is stupid and that is wrong. But the good news is, is that Jesus Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And it is time to believe and start living like that's actually true. Thank goodness you and I have a friend in Mark who will tell us the good news we really want to hear. Now, second, and not only that, Mark acknowledges not just that we want good news, but he acknowledges the longing for good news that we all carry. He acknowledges the longing for good news that we all carry. And look with me at verses 2 through 3. Verses 2 through 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, Here's what's really puzzling about this. This puzzles all sorts of scholars when they're, when they're talking about this, is that Mark is writing to a predominantly non-Jewish audience. He's writing to Romans, and so it's puzzling to people that he would start a book by quoting um, the Old Testament like this. And in fact, what he does here is he actually quotes three different parts of the Old Testament. Um, he quotes uh, Malachi 3.1, Exodus 23.20, Isaiah 43. He attributes it to Isaiah because that's what you would do if you kind of collected people together. You just kind of tipped your cap to the most well-known prophet. And that's the way he starts, starts this book. And everybody's kind of like, well, why would Mark do that if he's writing to a group of people that have very little familiarity with the Old Testament whatsoever? Well, there's a couple of reasons that Mark does this. It's pretty interesting. The first is this. Um, it appears that Mark is kind of just starting out of the gate, taking a shot at the Romans. If you look at verse 3, where he refers to Jesus and kind of anticipates Jesus being the Lord, he is affirming that Jesus Christ is God. Um, and he's, you know, to a group of people that sort of worshipped their rulers as deities. Um, you have um, uh, him basically coming out of the gate and saying, no, like, you're wrong. There's one God. His name is Jesus Christ. And that's the truth and you just need to believe and receive. So Mark's a little fiery on the front end as well, which I appreciate. I like that a lot about him. Um, but here's the second and more important thing. is it, It's interesting, when you kind of go back and see the three different Old Testament um, passages that Mark quotes, and you read them in the fullness of their context, the one thing that links these three different mentions of the Old Testament together is actually the theme of the wilderness. What you see are various times where God's people, either figuratively or literally, are wandering in the wilderness of their lives, and they're longing for God to step in. They're longing for someone greater to step in and to redeem and to restore their world back to the way they yearn for it to be. Now, here's the really interesting thing about this, when you start to kind of understand this through this lens, is that when you understand that Mark is starting this off not just by kind of giving a bunch of random Old Testament quotes, and he's instead introducing the universal theme of wilderness wandering, that something that we all universally struggle with in your life and in my life as well, that we, we yearn for someone bigger than ourselves to step in and make things right. What we see is this, introduce, this introduction is tremendously and universally applicable. I mean, all of us, even though we sit 2,000 years 
on the other side of this being written. I mean, when you think about your life, when you think about the things that you see on your Facebook newsfeed, and if you actually scroll through them, and you don't just kind of skip very quickly through the sad stories, right? You don't just skip through them. So you can get through the BuzzFeed articles about, like, in my early 20s, these were the things that I spent my time doing. <laughs> like, if you don't skip over, like, like, I mean, like we saw this afternoon, like the beheading of 21 uh, Christians in the Middle East at the hands of ISIS. Like, if you happened this weekend, if you don't just kind of scroll past that in order to see the next BuzzFeed article, but you actually read them and digest them and see that the world is universally wandering in the wilderness. If you think about your own life, and you think about whether it's your marriage, whether it's your kids, whether it's your frustration with not being married or having kids, or it's what you're doing with your life, or it's the fact that you've reached a point in your life where it's like, is this the way it's going to be for the rest of my life? We collectively, universally know, no matter what it is that we believe about God, what it's like to wander in the wilderness and yearn for someone greater than ourselves to make things right again. Not only that, but we even know the even more despair-causing emotion of trying to make things better and failing at that over and over and over again. I mean, many of you in this room, not only have you wrestled with walking in the wilderness, but you've wrestled with the even worse feeling of like, I've done everything possible to get me out of this, and I'm stuck here again. I think that's even a worse feeling, not just being there, but being like, is this the way it's going to be for the rest of my life? And many of you, you have tried drinking and you have tried drugs and you have tried skiing and you have tried experiences and you have tried moving and you have tried dating new people and you have tried, you've tried everything. And like we said, you're probably here because we're your last resort, which we're really glad that you're here. It's a scary place to be, but you're not alone in feeling it. In fact, another Frenchman, this is French Knight here at the Summit Church, um, by the name of Blaise Pascal, he was also somebody who struggled tremendously with faith. Here, here's what he said kind of about this yearning. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. And here's the thing that Mark is proclaiming in this moment. He's saying, we as human beings universally wrestle with walking in the wilderness. We as human beings need an infinite person to step in and fill that infinite void in our hearts. And the good news is, is that we can prepare the way because God has chosen to land and to step out of heaven into history onto enemy-occupied territory to make things right again. And he's saying, prepare the way. Like, put on your big boy pants or your big girl pants. Because like Jesus is here and he is going to make things right again. And we should rejoice in response to that. Now, if that's in any way enticing to you, here's what I want to say. Just a couple things, and then I'll be done. The first is this. The first thing I would say to you is if that's in any way enticing to you, and you're like, okay, well, like, that seems like really good news, and that seems really appealing to me. How? Like, how does that work? How does that practically shape my life? Help me 
wrestle through this and wrap my mind around this? Well, well here's the deal. is The rest of the book is the answer to that question. And so I, we can't answer it all tonight, but what I hope is you really dive into study this book for yourself as well as join alongside us as we study this book together. So that's first. The second is this. It's for those of you who feel like you are currently walking in the wilderness. I want you to see that this book is written in particular for a man or woman just like you. Now, it's easy. It's easy to feel like God is moving in your life um, when everything is the opposite of the wilderness, when things are going exactly the way you want. That's kind of the way that popular culture communicates. Like, I'm hashtag blessed uh, as long as life is going my way, and that's when God is most near. What's interesting about this is Mark is actually saying that the opposite is often true. It's often in the wilderness of our lives where God is preparing to do his absolute greatest work. And what I hope that offers for those of you who have tried everything, you've tried your knowledge and you've tried your obedience and you've tried veil and you've tried drinking and you've tried, is that there would be stirred inside you at least some glimmer of hope that it doesn't have to be this way for the rest of your life. It doesn't have to be this way for the rest of your life. That Jesus Christ steps in in the midst of humanity's greatest wilderness experience. And that if you're wrestling with that, and you're struggling with that, and if you're tired, and you're weary, and you feel at the end of your rope, and you're wondering, does God care? He does. He does. And the rest of the story is tangible proof that he does. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond. We're going to respond through praying. We're going to respond through singing. respond through the taking of communion. Um, I'll explain all that here in a second, but I'm going to close in prayer, and uh, and then we'll talk about next steps. God, we thank you so much um, for who you are. We thank you so much for what you've done, and we thank you so much um, for the good news of the gospel. that you've done for us what we can't do for ourselves, that you've come to give us not a list of things for us to do or even a, a list of intellectual beliefs that we somehow have to be intelligent enough to understand. You've come to bring good news that is meant to be believed and received. And so, God, I pray that we would live those types of lives that says like, you are who you say you are. Your truths really do reign supreme over this earth. I mean, not just as we gather together on a Sunday, but more importantly, like when we're gathering in our homes with our families and we're wondering about the state of our marriages and our kids and our neighborhoods, when we see the world universally walks through the wilderness to see that you have stepped into that and you've redeemed and made all things new. God, I pray that we would respond to that truth to the best of our capacities. Um, that you would stir within us a heart that desires to love and know you better. And uh, let us worship and respond rightly. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.